You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. What are the mysteries of Christianity? And so we have looked at the Trinity. We have looked at the Incarnation. And this morning we turn our attention to the mystery of the Gospel What does it mean to speak of union with Christ? Uh, And so if you have your Bibles in front of you, open them to Romans chapter 6. And as we look at this particular text, you'll quickly notice that Paul has a certain phrase and combination of phrases that make their way often into his letters. Phrases like with Christ, in him, with him. So in other words, Paul talks a lot about union with Christ. At least if you combined all the different variations of that phrase in Paul's letters, he he refers to that over 70 times, which would tell us, one, it's important if Paul's referring to it that much, but also it raises the question, not just why is it important, but what does it mean to speak of union with Christ? That this is something accomplished through Jesus Christ coming and dying for our sins. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul is in the middle of a discussion about this new life that we have in Christ. Uh, And you notice how the chapter begins with a couple of rhetorical questions. And he begins this way, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase now paul's going to answer that question by dealing with the subject of union with christ but what that automatically tells us is that spiritual truth and in particular union with christ is an often misunderstood mystery remember we're using the word mystery in the sense here is something that we would have no way of knowing anything about it unless god chose to reveal it to us But at the same time, we're recognizing that we cannot fully wrap our minds around certain spiritual truths. But we know enough about them that they should once lead us to greater praise and worship of God. And they should also have a direct impact in our lives. And I'm confident that we will see union with Christ fits in that category. So why would Paul begin with a couple of rhetorical questions? And when Paul says, what shall we say then? This isn't as if Paul's at his wit's end or he's so frustrated with what he's dealing with that he just kind of is throwing his hands up metaphorically. But to make sense of those questions, look at how chapter 5 ends. In chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, Paul writes, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul anticipates now some possible criticism, misunderstanding of what he's just said there about the gospel that God's grace is poured out to us in Christ. The law showed us our need for Christ, so they are not in opposition to one another. And he anticipates 
This mystery is going to be misread by some. That someone who will hear this letter read to them in the church in Rome will, will think Paul's saying something that he is not. So Paul anticipates some possible objections. And that is always the case, I think, in dealing with spiritual truth and especially in dealing with mysteries of Christianity. So Paul anticipates, having just said you're saved by grace, um, that he anticipates there's going to be some that will accuse him of ignoring the law. In other words, uh, of being an antinomian, that Paul's someone who's just against the law. You can just get rid of it, has nothing to do now, we're, we're all under Christ, we're, we're under grace. So Paul needs to answer that because he's not saying the law served no purpose. It accomplished its purpose. But then there's another group who would come at him from the opposite direction who would consider themselves legalists. In other words, they are committed to doing the Old Testament law. Every aspect of it, sort of think of it as a salvation that is driven by performance. And we have many people around us today that associate salvation, right standing with God based on performance. You know, how often do they go to church? Are they members in a church? What do they put in the offering plate? Um, they're, they're looking at performance markers that they think make them right with God. And so there's gonna be those who are hearing this potentially who are gonna come at Paul from that perspective. And then there's a third group of potential critics. That is those who will accuse Paul of peddling cheap grace. In other words, kind of saying, all right, Paul, if, if I got you right here, you're saying that the more you sin, the more God's grace is poured out on you. So basically, in Christ, you have a license to sin. You can live however you want. Now, Paul is not saying that, as you'll see in his response, but I think it reminds us how easy it is to have a misunderstanding, not just of spiritual truth, but but when you think about the union with Christ. What does that mean and what does it not mean? So just flip the page to Romans chapter 8 because Romans 6 through 8, Paul is, is going to preface his entire discussion there on this core teaching of union with Christ. But if you look at Romans 8, verses 14 through 16, Paul writes this. He says, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now Paul says, in Christ you are sons, and we could include their sons and daughters of God. This does not mean that union with Christ means that we become Christ. Because notice the distinction here is we are children of God. We are sons and daughters of God through the process of adoption, which has happened through the grace of Jesus Christ. We're not sons and daughters of God by nature, which is what Jesus Christ is eternally. And so notice that distinction. We don't want to think that Paul is saying union in Christ means we become Christ and there's no difference. 
Yes, we share in some of his communicable attributes, evidenced by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, but there is always and ever will be only one Father, one Son of God, and one Holy Spirit. We are the children of God, sons and daughters of God by adoption, not by nature. And so it's important that we understand that distinction so we can clearly say, all right, what does Paul mean by union with Christ? But to add maybe one other factor in this, and you may be thinking already, well, I, I kind of know what that means, but realize that because union with Christ is a misunderstood mystery, not only can we have misconceptions of what it means, but it can also be simply because it's a very neglected teaching. Do, do we think about when we've heard messages, studied, read the scriptures about union with Christ? Because I wonder if we have a large percentage of Christians who have not grasped that concept, then it must fall back to partly to, are they not hearing it being taught and explained? Paul certainly peppered his letters with discussion of being with Christ, in Christ. Because notice verse 2 of Romans chapter 6. This is Paul's response when he wants to negatively shut down where this course of argument might be going. And it's just three words, by no means. Uh, some translations put it too, certainly not. This is Paul's phrase that says, don't even go there. If, if you think that that's what I'm saying, just stop and listen as I explain to you once again what union with Christ means. So we've kind of covered what it does not mean, but now we're left with the bigger question, what does union with Christ mean? And so now we kind of shift to look at the fact that union with Christ is a marvelous mystery. If, if we can only start to look at what Paul says about it here, we should walk away with a richer understanding of, of what an amazing truth it is to speak of union with Christ. And i give you a, a feel for how not just Paul emphasized that, as we'll see, but others throughout history. Two different Johns separated by centuries. You have John Owen, a Puritan divine, who would say this, the principle and measure of all spiritual enjoyments and expectations is based on union with Christ. In other words, he's saying that that's the measuring line. If you want to talk about enjoyment in Christ, if you want to talk about what God expects of you in Christ, it all comes down to union with Christ. Centuries later, John Murray, professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, would say union with Christ is the central truth of the doctrine of salvation. So there's part of your answer. What does Romans 6 have to do with an Advent or Christmas message? Because it gets right at the heart of the gospel, union with Christ. So let's delve into looking closer now at what that is by considering Romans 6 and verses 2 through 3. Uh, this mystery of union with Christ has two parts. One is that you are in Christ as a believer. 
And you can even put your name there. I am in Christ as a believer. And so you look at verses 2 and 3, and Paul uses this illustration and analogy uh, that highlights here baptism. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So here's Paul's basic premise. You, you've died to sin. If you've died to something, you, you can't live in it at the same time. To any of us who have ever attended a funeral, there, there's no question that that individual is dead. They, they can't be partly dead. They're, they're dead or they're alive. They're one or the other. So Paul just puts it right out there. Then he goes on and says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So he says, clearly, union with Christ means we have died to sin. Now we'll have to clarify that in a moment. But we have died to sin and you've been baptized into Christ. Now, New Testament scholars are somewhat divided on, is Paul using baptism here just in the spiritual sense, like our identification with Christ upon confession of faith? In other words, when you acknowledge Christ as Lord and Savior, you are baptized in the Spirit. Is he also referring to the picture and image of physical baptism, the, the thought of immersion and being brought back up? Definitely, he is considering spiritual baptism here. What happens in Christ? We are identified in him based upon profession of faith. Um, you could make a case that also the physical imagery is supporting that. Uh, whether or not that's Paul's primary focus, I don't think is as important as what he's saying here about identification with Christ. But then you go a little further, notice verse 4. He says, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So you've got that analogy, you've, you've died to sin. What does that mean? Well, you've been buried with Christ. When Christ died on the cross, he died for your sins in your place in my place but we know the rest of the story it's not just Christ died and he went into the grave but he was raised back up to new life so you can see Paul contrasting here two very different conditions or states which often is associated when Paul will use this preposition either in Christ or with Christ he, he's talking about a condition or state someone is in so as a believer Paul's saying this is how you should see yourself but he goes on again in verse 5 uses another term it says if we have been united with him like this in his death we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection now the, the word united there is in a perfect tense which means Paul's looking at something that has already happened in your life, but it has existing ongoing results. So no matter how long you've known the Lord, you could say, all right, this happened back on such and such a time. That confession of faith has this ongoing result in my life. I am united with Christ. That means I have died to the power and guilt of sin, and I've been raised up 
not just for present new life in Christ, but think out into the future. What does that mean about our certainty that one day we will be raised up and reign forever with Christ? That that is a part of that being raised up, the completion of that certainty. And then you notice verse 6 and verse 9, Paul uses the phrase, for we know. In other words, he's saying this should be something, a great mystery that every believer can wrap their mind at least partially around. That we know this. We, we understand it. We can comprehend it. Not, not exhaustively, because this is still a, a mystery. It's a mystery of the gospel. But the reality is that Paul presents this and says, here are these two opposite states. Now, I'm going to do a little exercise. I'm going to read something, uh, and I won't tell you where it's from, but it's one of Paul's letters. And whenever you hear me say something like, in him, with Christ, or a form of that, all I want you to do is put your hand up for a second, then put it back down. So just, just listen as I read this. And see if you can catch any phrase that's similar to or exactly like with him, in him, in Christ. So let me begin. Uh, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of of God's grace. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you counted, you probably had your hand up and down seven times. So within a matter of a few passages that open the book of Ephesians, Paul drives home this is what union in Christ means. That you are in Christ. You have died with Christ to sin in his death. You have been risen and raised up to new life in Christ. This is very critical to the other part of Paul's argument in Romans 5 where he's explaining how come everybody needs a savior? Like, like how did everyone enter this world a sinner. And it's because Adam was our representative. Now Jesus Christ is the second Adam, our representative. By his actions, many are affected. So the first part of the mystery and marvel of the union with Christ is that you are in Christ. But then there's a second part, and that is Christ is in you. So what does that look like? Well, go back to Romans chapter 6. And verses 11 through 14, Paul takes this mystery and says, here's how it should 
fit and look in your life as a believer. And so as you look closely at verses 11 through 14, you see the application of union with Christ now placed on the Christian's life. So notice verse 11. In the same way, so you're moving from like a theoretical, theological argument to now, all right, what, what good is this for me? How, how is this going to impact me? In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the word count there sometimes is rendered to reckon. Uh, it, it means to, to calculate and reason and think. Notice he doesn't say uh, you should feel this way. Because the reality is we, we often don't feel some of these biblical truths that are stated. They're written down for our continual instruction and reminder. So when he says, count yourselves, he's saying, get this into your heads. If you know Christ as Lord and Savior, you are dead to sin. Now, where he's going with this, and he'll have to deal with this in the next chapter, this does not mean that you don't still wrestle against sin. What he's saying here is you, you, the power of sin has been broken. You will wrestle against sin because you still have a sinful nature. But that has been overruled and overpowered by Jesus Christ. So do Christians still sin? Yes. But Paul will say they don't continue in a habit of certain sins. And the issue is they struggle now against sin. They, they don't embrace it. It doesn't come naturally. They, they shouldn't and don't enjoy it when they fall into sin because of our union with Christ. So in other words, every believer should see themselves as being dead to the power and guilt of sin. And yet if you sometimes listen to even how maybe we might talk about struggles we're having, we almost make it sound like we're still enslaved to sin. That it's just so powerful over us. We, we just couldn't, you know, avoid that circumstance or we, we just didn't have the, the quote-unquote willpower to resist. That's forgetting. You're dead to sin. You're not like partly dead to it. You're, you're, you're dead. But then he goes on as well. Notice verse 6 in establishing this principle. He says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That phrase to be done away with means literally to make completely powerless and inoperative. Not, not to just weaken sin, but, but to do away with it. To, to cancel its authority over us. This will explain why Jesus needed to be not, not just fully God to accomplish our redemption, but fully man as well, to, to represent us, to identify with us, but, but also to conquer the power of sin as being both God and man. Every believer needs to see ourselves as we are dead to sin in Christ Jesus. And then verse 12 Verse 12 is all of a sudden a shift to imperatives. 
So in other words, I think as Christians, when John Owen said that union with Christ is the principle and measure of all spiritual enjoyments and expectations, what he was saying is if you don't understand union with Christ, then Christ's expectations and commands of us, his imperatives will not make sense. Or we'll feel like I, I could never do that. You know, I'm not Paul. You know, maybe if I was some super saint, this would apply. The fact that we have union with Christ means that now you can talk about imperatives because we're in Christ. And so you notice in verse 12, the imperative that's given, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. So when we fall into sin as a believer, we've chosen to sin. But we didn't have to. Wasn't that our circumstances just made us sin, that we are a victim of living in a sin-cursed world? It's, it's an issue of disobedience. Because remember what Paul started out, you are dead to sin and alive in Christ. So every believer needs to know that they are dead to sin. Now, I didn't say you should feel like that because I don't think we often will feel that way. But the reality is, in Christ, we are dead to sin. But there's a second part of this marvelous mystery of thinking about Christ in us. Not just that we are dead to sin, but we are made alive in Christ. That we are now to be instruments of righteousness. So you see in verses 13, or excuse me, 13 and 14, Paul brings this down to a very practical level. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Notice the very strong language Paul says, here's, here's how the practical impact off of yourselves. Present yourselves as instruments of righteousness. Now you can be used by God to honor God in, in everything. When he says parts of your body, the members of your body, he's not talking about like members in a church. He's saying everything you do physically with your body, serve God. But what a completely different picture from what we were like before acknowledging Christ. We, we were captives to sin. We, we sinned in our thoughts, in our minds, with our bodies. But all that's changed now. Not because we have stronger willpower, but because of our union with Christ. And maybe it would help us to feel a little bit more empowered if you thought about the phrase, the word instruments there would be better rendered weapons. Because that's how Paul typically uses that word in context like this. So in other words, you could say when, when worship service ends in one sense, you continue in worship as you're sent out into the world as weapons of righteousness. To, to pierce the spiritual blindness and darkness that's around us to demonstrate that you are in Christ and Christ through his Holy Spirit is 
in you. And isn't that what Advent is reminding us of? That this is only possible through Jesus Christ. So David Feldman challenged us to think about many imponderables, but none of those even come close to the mysteries we've been looking at this Advent so far. The mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of Christ being both God and man, without compromise, without confusion. And now the mystery of what it means to say, Christ lives in me and I am in Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, how desperately we need to be reminded of this dramatic change that follows our justification, our adoption, and is a part of our sanctification that is ongoing in you. Lord, this week, I don't know what each of us will face, but somewhere we will need to remind ourselves that we are dead to sin and alive to God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.